0: And Hound podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I know last week I promised you an update on my seasonal eventing debut at Dauncy, but sadly the weekend classes there were cancelled due to the heavy rainfall. My poor horse has now had six British eventing runs in a row cancelled since June 2019, one due to lack of entries, one due to COVID-19 and four because of the weather. And I really want to know from you, the podcast listeners, can anybody beat that? Has anybody had more than six entered events in a row cancelled? Now, obviously, I know that most people's plans were wrecked by coronavirus this spring. So I'm not counting it if, you know, you plan to go to six events, but they didn't run because of coronavirus. You have to have actually entered. But if you have entered seven or more events in a row, which have all been cancelled, email me. I want to hear from you. I'll give you a shout out on next week's podcast. I'm on pippa.roomatfuturenet.com. That email address is in the magazine every week. On this week's podcast, I'll be chatting to Chinese event rider Alex Huatian about missing out on London 2012, Team China's journey to Tokyo and making his Olympic debut as a teenager in 2008.
2: Looking back on it now, I think I've got more out of falling off at the Olympics than I would have done if I'd finished 50th or wherever. I very much felt after that that I still had something to prove.
1: I'll also be joined by our news team to talk about horse feed contamination, employer's liability insurance, and how new low emission zone charges affect horse boxes. Finally, we introduce a new guest on our advice section, with vet Helen Van Tool giving her thoughts on dealing with blackthorns after a day's hunting.
0: The common call I get is, he finished the day sound, I took him home, I couldn't get him off the lorry, that's how lame he is.
1: So that's enough of me, pull on your raincoat and let's get going. My guest this week is the Chinese event rider Alex Huitian. Alex has contested two Olympics, finishing in the top 10 at Rio 2016 and been an event rider masters winner. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast, Alex.
2: Hello, Pepper. how are you?
1: Yeah, good, thank you. It's nice to have you on. I was just thinking that we've known each other 20 years since you were 10 (laughs) years old and I was 18.
2: (laughs) frightening, isn't it? It I know.
1: I think we need to start by explaining why we've known each other so long, which is that I was a working people with Lucinda and Clayton Fredericks in my gap year between school and university, which is a terrifyingly long time ago. And you turned up there as a, a tiny little boy 10 yeah, years old
2: yeah.
1: how did that come about that you suddenly appeared at Lucinda and Clayton's when you were so young
2: um I think I well to be honest it's, I don't really know I think uh <laughs> um Clayton and Cinder had been doing some clinics in Hong Kong which is where I was growing up at that time and um I really enjoyed the clinics my mum connected with them really well uh, we were very, very good friends with the Macaulays, who were Clayton's top owners at the time. And uh, my mum had sent me to Wellington riding with a bunch of friends the year before in the summer. And I would had a really good time there as well for a week. And I think she felt she wanted me to experience something a little bit different, maybe uh, go to some events, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think Clayton and Cinder, you know, in, and, and I think very much Clayton in his way, talked to my mum in Hong Kong, yeah, we'll find Alex and I think I, I went with a friend called Carolyn. Uh, we'll find we'll find Alex and Carolyn some ponies, and they'll have a great time. So we turned up at Rosegarth, and obviously no ponies. Huge eventing establishment, lots of uh, thoroughbreds and blood horses. And uh, Carolyn and I were stuck on lots of big, beautiful horses as tiny little ten-year-old kids. But we had a great time, and we were we were v- both very confident riders. So, um, so I had a great time and, and, and basically I, I stuck on then at Rosegarth for 10 years, all the way up to Beijing.
1: Yeah. I remember you riding those horses, big horses with your your little legs barely coming below the saddle flap. But as you say, sort of out of that association, Cinder and Clayton ended up pretty much masterminding your eventing career right through to the 2008 Olympics, didn't they?
2: Very much so, very much so. And, um, you know, we, I moved back with my family from Hong Kong to the UK a couple of years later uh, for school and my mum's thoroughbred a horse called Chance Bid uh, moved back from Hong Kong at the same time. And I started my eventing career on him and and went all the way from, you know, I think it was pre-novice at the time uh, up to competing around my first CIC three star, which is what it was called at the time at Chatsworth um, when I was 17 years old. And and to be honest, you know, it wasn't just the horses, it was spending time with you guys, the working pupils. I learned I learned a lot about life, as much as I did about the horses. It was it was definitely very interesting.
1: <laughs> I think that goes for my time there as well. To be honest, <laughs> but Alex, you had a real whirlwind time as a teenager eventing. You know, you you were at boarding school here in Britain, and, and with Lindsay and Clayton, and, and eventing. And and as you say, did your first CIC three star when you were seventeen. Ended up at the Olympics when you were eighteen, the youngest event rider ever to contest an Olympics at that time. How did all that come about that, that you went so quickly sort of up the ranks and and ended up riding at Olympics when you were so young?
2: Well, it it sounds crazy when you put it like that, doesn't it? Looking back on it all. Um, I think, I think it was a combination of quite a few factors. I think circumstances being, being half Chinese being, you know, of, of dual heritage certainly gave me the opportunity to compete for China in, in my home Olympic games, but also my. British half gave me that opportunity to, in many ways, assimilate into the eventing world comfortably and um, really take on the whole lifestyle, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I think having incredibly supportive parents, um, with my mum and dad, uh, who not only, you know, gave me all the opportunities to do what I wanted to do, but also allowed me to make the decision to do it because for the Beijing Olympics, I ultimately took a year out of school between my last two years so the year before my A-levels and um, although the opportunity was there my parents never really pushed me down it so I, I owned that decision which I think was looking back on it was a really important part of that part of my life and and then and then the the crazy amount of money that that was given to that project by a very generous individual in in Guangzhou, in Guangdong, in the south of China, who funded my Beijing Olympic campaign, Um, you know, I think the combination of all of those things and timing just brought it all about.
1: Mm, And you ended up, as you say, with with that funding that meant you had quite a number of horses in the running and you sort of went all around Europe preparing Mm. and, and riding in all those competitions just to get the experience that you needed. How did it go when you actually got there at the end of all the build-up?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I fell off very sadly. It, it, all sounds, it all sounds amazingly exciting, which it really, really was. And it was such a special time in my life and totally surreal in many ways. Um, and and then to, to fall off at fence eight on the cross country, having jumped so beautifully through the water a couple of fences beforehand as well, um, was just such a heartbreaking moment for me personally. And really, I think it just burst the fairy tale bubble that I was living in at the time, um, which did it. It definitely took me some time to get over that. But in many ways, I think actually, it's it's uh, looking back on it now. I think I've got more out of falling off at the Olympics than I would have done if I'd finished thirtieth, 40th, fiftieth, or wherever. Um, you know, it was such a fairy tale, and I think if everything was given to me on a on a silver plate. Uh, with a nice result to put a little bow on the top of it. I, I probably wouldn't be eventing now. I, I I very much felt after that, that I still had something to prove, uh, which is why I'm still here.
1: <laughs> mm, that's really interesting. And you did go back to school and finish your A-levels. I did. And I think, yeah, and you actually thought about university, but decided to give eventing a go?
2: Well, I, I had a very uncomfortable conversation with my parents two days before I was supposed to be going to university. I was supposed to be reading engineering at bristol and um and I just had this very naive notion in my head that I would be it would be easy to do a very involved uh, degree like engineering, have the social life that I wanted to have at university plus event the four five what were at the time four star horses now five star horses as well and I think the days that I was starting to pack for university ultimately, I just realized that. I think it brought that decision to a crunch and I had to make a decision between university or pursuing an eventing career. And and I just felt that I had the four best horses I probably would ever have in the rest of my life and the one opportunity that nobody else ever has to, to have a really good go at it. And uh, I sat my parents down and had a very, very uncomfortable conversation with them. Um, and it's just a testament to how supportive they are. I mean, they weren't happy about it, but they they did give me the the latitude to take what what I called was a deferred three years. It ended up
1: being a, well, a deferred twelve years so far. That's it. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> my father, my father, being a, a very typical Chinese father where education is everything, is still horrified that I never went to university, and still still goes on about it to this day. <laughs>
1: um and skipping forward because i think the olympics are sort of benchmarkers in your career you missed out in london 2012 but it was by a hair's breadth wasn't it yes in the point system that that you've always been fighting to get into the olympics as someone from an underrepresented nation in eventing Mm. come on tell us how close was it what happened if you can summarize that complicated system
2: it was painful so basically your individual um, way into the Olympics is through your through rankings. Your best At the time, I think it was your best five results on any horse uh, over a year's period. And um, ultimately, it came down to the last week. There was this slight last month panic from all of the eventers from smaller nations in Europe, where we went to this wonderful competition in the south of Spain near Seville called Dos Hermanos for three weeks, and then all shipped over to Monte Libretti, which was a long way uh, in uh, just outside of Rome in Italy. And um, ultimately, it came down to the last weekend of the qualifying period, I was on a horse called Irish Fiddle, ESB Irish Fiddle. And um, I finished 11th. And if I would finished 10th by 1.6 penalties, I would have qualified directly in. Uh, and as it turns out, I was last on the wait list. So it was, it was painfully close.
0: Oh,
1: so close, but after missing out in 2012, it all came good for your second Olympic experience at Rio, where you and Don Gennaro ended up in eighth place.
2: Amazing. It's, 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 it's really, it's again, surreal to look back on it now and, and, and how, because he was a young horse, he was nine, um, he, you know, admittedly was not the horse I was planning to take. I was planning to take my older horse, Harbour Pilot C, and uh, we just didn't know whether the experience, he was old enough and experienced enough to handle it all. and. And he seems to be a horse that loves the southern hemisphere.
1: <laughs> and he's quite a character, isn't he? He's a bit of a horse of many personalities.
2: He is. He is. We have, we have several Don hashtags. We have, um, we have Do- hashtag Don the dick. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on here. might have to edit that <laughs> out uh, when he's being a, a pain. Um, and we have Olymp- hashtag Olympic Don uh, when, he's being, uh, when he's on top form. And then we have hashtag floppy Don when he's being truly useless. Uh but he's 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 look, he's a he's a wonderful horse, Don. He's unbelievably talented. Uh, he's just quite a unusual personality for a top event horse. Most most of your top top event horses are super ambitious personalities as well as being talented. Um and Don is a sweet, cuddly character in the stable and and quite often takes quite a lot of motivating to try his hardest. So if he is self-motivated on a particular date you can you feel like you're on the best horse in the world and and other times he's he's just not really feeling it today and and you're, you're feeling like you're having to to twist everything to get get what you can out of him which can be quite a hard hard work really
1: yeah that's frustrating because as you say he is an incredibly talented horse when he's on his best form Alex the Tokyo build-up and obviously we're, we're looking at Tokyo being a year further on now, but the build-up presumably has been very different for you this time because China has a team qualified and, and running through that qualification process as a nation and as a team rather than as an individual for the first time mm. must have made it a completely different for now five-year build-up for you.
2: It, it's It's been really interesting because when we sat down to discuss this, I wasn't necessarily pessimistic, but I felt that it would be... A better decision to target the 2022 World Championships, and with an aim of then going on to qualifying for the 2024 Olympics. I just felt that the time scale for Tokyo, in terms of team qualification, was was all a bit too tight with finding horses and training and qualifications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, ultimately, the, the CEA made the the brave decision to to support uh, riders aiming for Tokyo. Uh, And since then, uh, between that decision and qualifications for Tokyo, the FEI very much changed the qualification criteria for teams, not necessarily making it easier, but certainly making it a much more open contest for countries that are not traditional equestrian nations um and i think you know f- from my perspective that's absolutely the right thing for the FEI to be doing
1: mm. and to my shame you are the only chinese event rider who i can name who are the other <laughs> who are the other likely chinese riders we're going to see in tokyo who are going to be part of that team who should we be looking out for where are they based what are, what are sort of their stories in brief
2: sure so um so there are four riders uh, based between event riders based between europe and china at the moment obviously covid-19 has, has somewhat thrown that into um, it made it a little bit more complicated picture, but I'll, I'll keep it simple. Uh, we have uh, probably chi- China's number one eventer, uh, based in China normally, uh, called Liang Reiji, uh, who's from the Guangdong team, who's, who is the, the team down south. And uh, he's national champion eventing, but he's also national champion show jumping. Uh, and he's been China's top domestic rider for, for quite a few years now. Um, And he won four gold medals at the National Games uh, in 2017. He was based with me last summer uh, for a few months, um, but also uh, based in in Belgium as well with his show jumping horses. So he he moves around depending on visas and and other complications like that. Um, And then we have two riders based with Tim and Martin Lips in Holland, uh, Bao Feng and Sun Hua Dong. Um, And they're doing really well as well. They both jumped around the four star short at Le Pan in August uh, and did a a pretty good job around there. I think Bowing Fung decided to go for a long option, uh, but ended up going the wrong side and so got a technical 20, but in all effects jumped clear around cross country. So all in all, I think we're in a pretty good shape
1: that's really interesting and when you get together and, mm. and ride as a team have you had the opportunity to to do that as part of the, of the build-up yet where where you've sort of been riding as team china or has it been quite individual
2: no no we've been um uh, so uh adi or liang reiji was was with me all of last summer and we had um we had a couple of competitions we were in sopot last september all together and liang reiji is an, an excellent cook so we we have a great time really when we're together as a team because adi cooks um, and every evening we, we have a bit of a social and a get together and and in a funny way, I'm actually probably the one that knows the other riders the least because uh, all of these riders are up until a couple of years ago were full-time based in China, competing against one another on the show jumping and eventing circuit on a regular basis. So they they know each other for for years now. And so um, for me, it's it's been an interesting process getting to know each of these individuals uh, who I'll be competing with hopefully next summer.
1: Mm, that's great. And do you, as the most experienced rider in terms of international competition, take a bit of a sort of chef de keep role or anything when you're together or is that not something that's really expected of you?
2: I try not to. I, uh, ultimately at times, um, so at the Asian Games, the uh, I've competed at the Olympics as, individuals, as an individual in the past, but at the two Asian Games I've competed in, we've competed as a team. And in that situation as obviously the the most experienced but also a native english speaker as well um it's it's at times fallen upon me to be part of organizing and being a bit of a structure uh to what we're doing but I, i try not to because i think especially for for these guys they're moving out of a very different system in China in terms of how sport is arranged and how what is expected of you as an athlete, uh, where everything is 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 managed and you have team managers, etc., etc. And they're moving to Europe, where there is a lot less structure and, and riders have to fend for themselves and fight their own battles. And I think it's very important that each of these riders understands that, although I'm I'm always here to help and support. Um, they also have to learn that that is very much part of how things are done over here as well.
1: Hmm. And just talking about that point about you being a native English speaker, do you speak Chinese or when you're with them, do you all speak English? How does it work?
2: Uh, I think we, we speak Chinglish. <laughs> 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 a bit of a combination. Um, English is my first language, so my Chinese is not as good as I would like it to be. So uh, like different, each Baoing Fung speaks very good English. Uh, Liang Reiji also speaks pretty good English and Biamba is English isn't that great. So we sort of we communicate with a bit of a muddle between the two,
1: and you you get there, and you could all work out what we do happening. get
2: there. Yeah, 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 yeah
1: exactly. <laughs> That's good to exactly. hear. And Alex, finally, you've been getting some eye-catching results, sort of in the in this autumn season that we've been able to have in Britain in this weird year. You've got a really strong team of horses, I think, sort of at the four-star level now. Just tell us a little a little about some of them, besides Don Janeiro, who's obviously your top horse still. Who are the, those other younger horses who are really coming through to that level now?
2: Yeah, so um, so it's it's been an exciting year really, other than uh, everything this spring being cancelled. Um, we have uh, Spike, PSH Convivial, a, a smaller horse, he's quite little for me, uh, who's now fully qualified for Tokyo to join Don as, as part of the two that are fully qualified now. Uh, he's, he's a really, really cute little horse. I really like him. He's a proper jumper. Um, he's one of those horses where you go into your final day, um after the cross country and you can take a take a breath and relax and know that the horse is going to try its absolute guts out show jumping. Uh, he can just get a little bit tight in the dressage. And so out of all of my horses, he's perhaps the one that doesn't always mark the best, but he's definitely the most reliable jumping. Um, and then we have socks or ball breaker SD, which is a very unfortunate name. Um, he's a chestnut with four white socks. Uh, he's a super super talented horse that uh one of my teammates Liang Reiji, uh his owners bought from wills Oakden at the beginning of last year um He isn't the type of horse that would that Adi would suit uh, and adie and and didn't really feel he was getting the tune that he wanted out of him uh and so they asked if I would ride him up until the Olympics and try and qualify him for the olympics uh and he is he is quite a sensitive horse and it's taken me a bit of time as well to to gel with him. And and after uh, lockdown, I've had Wills over to give me a hand with him show jumping. And I I felt that that's made a huge difference as well. Um, And sadly, I I didn't get my full qualification at at Burnham Market with him. I had a um, a glove and rein malfunction. Um, He's quite strong. And um, I just found coming into fence nine, I went to take a pull and my hands ended up by the buckle uh which wasn't uh which which wasn't ideal and, and after a couple of jumps that weren't weren't ideal i just decided that you know what uh, i'll try another time when we have a bit more control
1: was that new gloves um, or rain or oh, it wasn't wet was it
2: i had old comfy gloves and um and slight slight good reins but slightly worn reins and a sweaty ho- sweaty strong horse and i think the combination of everything um just just didn't work for me I was just I was I was just like fine if I was just taking a bit of a pull but if I went really sat up to support him I, I was just feeling my hands jerking up the rein, which wasn't the feeling I wanted on him and he as a horse he always needs so a little bit of support down the contact that his last three strides uh and I wasn't able to give it to him so um so I just didn't feel that we were we were on the path to success on that day. Yeah,
1: another day for him. <laughs> oh, well it's good to hear hear about those uh, the, those young horses who are coming through the ranks and that you've you've got some good backups there for uh, for the Don looking to Tokyo next year.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much Alex. It's been great to get an insight into into Team China and and what's happening with you as we look towards uh, 2021.
2: Thank you Pippa. Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm joined today by our news editor Eleanor Jones. Hello Eleanor. Morning. And our senior news writer Lucy Elder. Hi Lucy. Hello. And also Becky our news writer. Hi Becky. Hi Peppa. Well, I've already given everyone my news in the introduction. My planned 2020 eventing debut was washed away by the rain last weekend. So I've now got everything crossed for Tweezerdown running this weekend so that I can get one run in in the 2020 eventing season, my big debut and finish to the season, hopefully this Sunday. But what about everybody else? Have you all been getting soaked with your horses? What's been going on with you
3: guys? Well, I managed to perfectly demonstrate the whole ups and downs of horses thing. Um, my grey mare who won at her last show out, took her out again this Sunday, two weeks later, same horse, same class, same venue, and managed to fall off. Oh no! (laughs) And it was because she loves jumping off, and the more you dare her, the more she loves it and the better she goes. And we did quite a good turn back to this fence, and then she stopped and managed to turn in her own length inside this fence, which I wouldn't have thought would been possible. but she went left and I was supposed to be going right. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) And it was as if she was going, watch this mum! Mum? Oh. Oh. But you didn't hurt yourself? (laughs) No, fine. But she was going. If I'd managed to stay on board, I think we'd have been up for quite a quick time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always good if horse and rider can complete the course together, (laughs) I find. Um, Lucy, what about you? I've stayed on, um, but only just. I think the
4: fresh breeze and the rain and things has really cheered up my my lovely mare, and it's all been quite. I've been glad to have the neck strap on a few times, so I'm uh, I'm holding tight and <laughs> not commenting at all on um, on anyone else who may have left the saddle.
1: and what about you Becky I think Scotland was actually the only uh place that had a BE event this weekend that was unaffected with Kirimia running to run its day of competition whereas the three other BE fixtures this week have all lost some of their days or some of their classes but what's the weather like in your part of Scotland
5: well I'm north of Aberdeen and it was pretty treacherous um I had a flooded outbuilding that I was sweeping out at midnight on Saturday so that wasn't much fun um But my big mares were rugged for the first time since last winter as well. So they did seem to cope better than I did. And I think my Shetlands just hid under my big mares. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: gosh. Well, I do feel like winter is very much on its way now. But Lucy, for the serious news, I'm coming to you first this week. Uh, You've been writing about a story that broke over the weekend about contaminated horse feed. What's been happening? Yes, yeah, so this was all happened quite quickly, uh, in terms of, of the time frame and
4: also our timescale and getting things to press. And it is it's been a very big story actually and even if you don't follow the, the sort of question media it's something you might well have seen in the national national media as well so this all started on friday france Gallup announced that five horses had recently tested positive for zolpatro which is it's approved for use and performance enhancer in some beef production systems outside the eu but isn't something that should be in horse feed or is used at all in horses in in europe um, and 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 so they'd done some investigating and they'd found that there was a common denominator of certain certain products which were produced by Gain. And again, they're not saying, you know, this is definitely where it came from, but, you know, that is quite a significant finding. Um, So Gain then advised their customers who had the feed to stop feeding as a precaution while they investigated. And so, I mean, that would be a big story in itself, but this was all very big news because this was happening on the Friday the ark was on sunday and the o'briens Aidan o'brien and his sons joseph and donica they feed gain horse feeds so this all became quite big news very quickly so we know that Aidan sent some uh, some urine samples uh to be tested in france uh as soon as they found out which is on the friday and those tests came back positive on the saturday and so without you know, being certain that that would be out there system by the Sunday. That led to withdrawal of four horses from the arc, as well as other runners across the weekend. Now, of course, GAIN don't just supply racehorse feed. They are a big, a big feed supplier to people across the discipline. So this was ripples are already being felt, you know, further afield than just this particular meeting, which is a big meeting itself. Um, and across, across Europe really. So we had advice from the BHA on Friday that, you know mirroring gains advice for people to stop feeding the feed immediately and to think carefully about whether they were going to run their horses that weekend or not and we saw withdrawals from roger varian and then in outside those disciplines we had Gemma Tassel who had to they would have been very you know very serious contenders for the new four star at little downham which was running early this week uh she pulled those you know because again nobody wants to risk horses you know, a, a positive result. And we I've also heard of people pulling out of fairly major dressage fixtures that have been happening. So this was this was huge news. And it is. I mean, it's still developing. Now we had the latest update from Gain last night. Who they've said that they've made significant progress in their investigation and are working closely with the Ireland's Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. And they have now restarted uh, equine feed production. Uh, but this this is a, being a very big story and just trying to find out what it means to people, what
1: people can do next, and w- what the next advice is going to be. Really. Hmm. And my immediate thought on this, if I had a horse that that was fed on gain, would be, can I get my, can I elect to have my horse tested and find out whether you know I I've got a problem or not? Is that I don't know about timescales, I don't know about cost, I don't know if that's a possibility, Lucy. Is that something that people have been able to to look into or do?
4: Yes, this is something I was really trying to find out as quickly and as accurately as I could yesterday because. Nobody wants a positive result, whether it's contamination or not, on their horse's record. And you know we have seen that they've been time post-tested in France, and there was also some news coming out of Australia with because uh, the O'Briens have got runners o- that are over there. They've gone into quarantine over there, you know, regular quarantine. But there are runners over there, and there's some elective tests going on over there. So I asked I asked the British Equestrian Federation if because the FEI does have an elective testing procedure, however this particular drug isn't one of the drugs listed on that elective testing procedure. So so you, that, isn't, that, isn't a, that isn't a route that they can go down. Um, we're also, I'm awaiting the latest advice from British Horse Racing Authority, because I asked them about this as well. Again, because people want to know where they stand and it's not, as it's not a drug that's used in horses, withdrawal times don't come into the picture really, because you shouldn't be withdrawing from something that you're not using. If that makes sense, so I think lots of people want to know where they stand, and and you know everyone wants clean sport and and how to go about that properly. We heard from uh, they were fantastically helpful, the British Equine Veterinary Association uh, yesterday evening as well, because I asked them about it. And so David Brendel, who's the chairman of their Health and Medicines Committee, he said that. It's the, the levels found in the contamination seem to be very low which is from a welfare point of view as in it it should be if your horses have been eating it t- so far I mean the early indications are that it's not going to have hopefully done them any harm but you know there's no data on again how quickly this drug is cleared and there's no mechanism he said for currently in place for horse owners in the UK to be testing their horses head of competition as regular veterinary laboratories that do equine work will not have the ability to test this, so I think. I think there's still quite a lot of questions surrounding this, uh, I mean we've seen we've seen from the O'Briens that it is possible, there are ways of certain labs will test for it, but I'm not. I'm just trying to get to the very bottom of how how to access those if that's something that people is, you know, an option for people or if, how prohibitively expensive that is, if they're going to be overwhelmed or if this is something that hopefully is minuscule quantities and going to be out their systems, you know, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I know, a bit, as I said, the British Horse Racing Authority are hopefully coming back to me on that sooner rather than later. And so hopefully
1: this will all, all become a bit, a bit clearer and can all move forward. Mm, as you say, a developing story and lots of questions still to be answered. And I was also just thinking about the... The practical implications for, for anybody who feeds gain, even if you're not a serious competitor, you know, if it's, you may you know, maybe you hear about this on Friday night, Saturday morning, you've got a horse or a yard of horses all fed on gain. That's the only horse feed you have in stock. You know, your horses want their breakfast. Do you not give them their breakfast? Do you drive out and buy some other feed and, and change their diet instantly, which is not something we ever recommend with horses. You know, we all know in our sort of pony club rules of feeding that if you're changing what you feed your horse, you do it gradually. Um, but, but with people being advised not to feed gain that that feels like it it might not be an option so just on that sort of quite quite practical note I think people must must be asking a lot of questions and and have already had to answer that question in terms of what they did. Absolutely I think you're absolutely right Pippa there's so many
4: so many questions as we said it all happened so quickly as well this is all where are we now we're on Tuesday and this is this happened on you know middle of Friday and over a weekend so yeah lots of practical as well as the bigger
1: questions going on here. Mm, I know that with my horse if you said no sorry you can't have your breakfast this morning I've got to go out and buy another make of horse feed that it, by the time I got back he'd have broken down the fence so uh, <laughs> I don't think just saying no breakfast this morning is really an option with him um thank you Lucy serious story there and we'll be following the, uh, the the ramifications in the next stages Eleanor insurance is the topic on your mind this week what have you been writing about
3: yeah specifically employers liability insurance um uh, there was a case of a groom who sustained a life-changing injury at work and the only compensation she got was £75,000. And obviously that does sound like a lot of money, but if it's a life-changing injury and you need lifelong care, that's nothing. Uh, And of course, if the employer hasn't got the the right liability cover for an accident that occurred in the workplace, then you could end up relying on, the employer could end up relying on his own assets which a lot of people obviously haven't got enough to cover the millions of pounds that could be claimed and um, a big thing being of course the employer's liability insurance is a a legal requirement as soon as you become an employer you have to have a policy that covers you for at least five million pounds from an authorised person and you have to display the certificate in your workplace and you can be fined two and a half grand for every day you haven't got the insurance.
1: Gosh and there's an important point here also about groom's employment status isn't there?
3: Yeah, so we've we've done some, some coverage on this before, when a lot of grooms appear to be told, oh, you're self-employed, when actually they're not. And there are some indicators such as if your boss says, you know, these are the hours you work and this is how much I'm going to pay you, you're much less likely to be self-employed. But of course, if then the boss is saying that as a way to not have employer's liability insurance, you could have a problem.
1: So tell us, what's the takeaway action from this story? What do grooms
3: need to do? What do employers need to do? Employers need to make sure they've got the the cover. If you employ staff, you have to have this cover cover, otherwise you're in breach of the law and you could be in for A, some serious fines or B, possibly a big claim. And if you're a groom, you have to make sure your employer has it. Um, they, do, they are required by law to display the certificate of liability cover on the premises. Um, so that should be a, a way of being able to check whether they've got it or not.
1: Mm, thank you, Eleanor. Becky, finally, we're coming to you to talk about clean air proposals and low emission zones. What's the story here?
5: Well, people may already be aware that um, low emission zones basically charge drivers of certain vehicles, which includes horse boxes, a daily penalty to drive through a designated area. And this is based on what emissions standard the vehicle meets. Now, there is a greater London zone, which has been around since 2008. But what's new is from March next year, the current penalties are going up for vehicles that don't meet the new standards that has been set which means horse boxes, well, some horse boxes over three and a half tons could have to pay up to £300 a day, which, you know, a lot of money, obviously. And there are future plans for zones in more areas, such as Leeds and Birmingham, and proposals are moving ahead to create a clean air zone in Greater Manchester.
1: Mm, and you've spoken to some, some venues and some riders who've been impacted by these sort of charges in the past. What sort of things are they telling you?
5: Well, a rider based in Greater Manchester really raised her concerns that competitors, perhaps just over the boundary line, um, will simply just look to to other venues than face paying extra to go to a centre within this zone. And I did speak to a centre in Greater London, who actually had stopped running British dressage competitions when the zone came in back in 2008, because simply competitors did stop coming to their shows.
1: Okay, so that's a serious impact for venues. Is there any action that riders can take to influence policy in any of the affected areas of the country or are these decisions made?
5: Well, the Transport for Manchester has launched an online public consultation to give people their views. They held an initial survey last year and actually did alter their proposals based on the feedback. Um, Some charges went up and some did indeed go down. So I think that shows it really is an important time for questions to have their say and take part in this consultation. For those in London, unfortunately, you know, the charges have been confirmed, it's very much, this will come in in March, but it is worth going online and there's a tool on the Transport for London website to input your registration and find out how much you'll be affected.
1: Okay, so definitely worth getting involved if you if you can, and having your say on, on those proposals. Thank you, Becky, and thanks to Eleanor and Lucy for joining us this week too. Next up, we managed to grab a few minutes with busy vet, Helen Van Tool, while she was on her way to vet a horse for important clients. Helen's practice, VT Vets, is based at Kirtlington outside Bister, and she hunts in that area, but also with Pax in Dorset, where she's a former joint master at the South Dorset. Over to Helen now.
0: So I think we're all familiar with the concept of puncture wounds in horses. I think it's a well-known idea that it's never the size of the wound that gets the equine vet excited. It is the location of the wound. Now, fundamental to this as a hunting vet is that we're very aware of blackthorn uh, poisoning in horses, particularly for those of us who hunt down in the Dorset West Country area. So we tend to know very quickly that we've got a problem and that somewhere during our lovely days hunting, we have had our horse drag a leg through a hedge, and we have a punchy wound with blackthorn into a joint. Most common are knees and fetlocks. Very rarely do we see a stifle injury with blackthorn unless there's been a fall. So all the horses jump the hedge exceptionally badly. So I think fundamentally, we see the lameness very quick. It's a very fast onset lameness. The lameness is visible as a severe lameness, usually seven, eight out of 10 lame on the affected leg within an hour, hour and a half of the penetration. So the common call I get when I'm in Dorset is, he finished the day sound, I took him home, I couldn't get him off the lorry, that's how lame he is. So we have a pretty good idea what's happening. In the first instant, we go out and have a look at the horse, we identify the joint. This can sometimes be tricky, other times it's very easy, you see a very large joint. We take a tap, so by putting the needle into the joint we take a sample of the synovial fluid which we can see by eye most often as whether there is an issue or not. It is very cloudy if there has been a blackthorn penetration and if you allow it to settle overnight you can see what happened. If it's a bit ambiguous as to whether or not the penetrations occurred, we can take the tap into the lab and check the white cell count on that. So once we've established the joint, if it hit a black form, we're unlikely to be worried about any fracture involvement, so we probably won't x-ray, but we will discuss the value of the horse, um, the age of the horse, and the location Uh, i.e. how close or not we are to a referral center. If the option for the horse is a referral, um, we'll send them in that that afternoon, that evening, into surgical joint flushing so they can remove the white cell and any debris. The difference with the blackthorn is they take a lot more aftercare than a normal joint penetration. A recent study that has just been published um, has done some specialist research onto the toxicity of the blackthorn itself which I think we've always recognised, but we've never had any clinical proof. So there's been a very interesting study to read. I think when the horses are maybe lower value horses, it can be hard to justify a surgical joint flush, which essentially can run into the cost of, you know, 3,000 pounds upwards. For those of us unlucky to have other issues within the joint, it might take multiple surgical flushes to get a resolution of the lameness. So there is often uh, an option to do a standing flush on the yard at home. This is essentially a very similar technique to the surgical flush. Um, It is merely done using uh, either catheters or large bore needles and we flush a quantity of the fluid in. As they say at vet school, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. So by flushing the sterilised saline through the joint, we hopefully flush out any particles of blackthorn that may or may not be in the joint um, and then allow us to remove the bacteria and any toxins. The aftercare of the horse um, is dependent on whether it has surgery or not. If it doesn't have surgery and we've done a standing flush on the yard... We tend to give broad-spectrum antibiotics um, and re-exam the horse daily for two or three days whilst we give these intravenous and intramuscular antibiotics. If it has gone to surgery, they tend to spend five or six days at the surgical centre making sure it's all well. We tend to take a second tap off the joint, so we take another sample of synovial fluid 48 hours after the flush so that we can see that we have resolution of uh, any of the issues we were facing. Hopefully they won't require much bandaging, hopefully there's no big wound involvement, um, and the horse will be able to return to the hunting field. Ideally, after a standing flush uh, in 10 days or so, after a surgical flush you might be looking longer, uh, nearer six weeks or so in my experience.
1: Thank you, Helen. We'll be joined by Helen again in the future, but next week, we'll be back with Ricky Farr of Far & Percy Equine for some of his top horse care advice. We'll have another special guest interview, and of course, all the week's news is normal. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast. And remember, you can access the podcast 24 hours before it goes on general release, as well as exclusive written news and features by joining Horse & Ham Plus, which you can find at horseandhound.co.uk forward slash plus online. Goodbye until next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.